Um, before, uh, if you want to take your Bibles out, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 and get ready for that. But uh, before we get into the message, I wanted to just take a moment to say thank you to Larry Iman for, uh, where's Larry? You guys are on the wrong side today. Switch sides. Uh, Larry filled in so ably the last two weeks. I always appreciate it when I'm gone. I know that Larry is going to bring a, a good message. It's going to be challenging. And uh, I listened to both of those messages and they were challenging as he talked about putting on the Lord's armor, the Lord's dress code. So I hope that was a blessing to you, and I hope that you uh, took a moment to say thank you to, to Larry. Uh, again, I really appreciate him filling in for me. So we are in the, the book of Daniel. This is our fourth week, and we've come to chapter three uh, this morning. We're calling our message Faith Under Fire. Faith Under Fire. Well, it was October 27th of 1962 was the day that the world almost ended. So some of you can think back to that time, perhaps. What was going on then? One man, a man by the name of Vasily Arkhipov, displayed the virtue of self-control. He was the second in command of the Soviet submarine B-59 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Located deep underwater near Cuba, and unable to receive outside communications due to the mandated radio silence, the crew of the submarine had not heard anything from Moscow in days. And now they had been detected by the U.S. Navy. The Americans released explosives, dropping them, intending to force the B-59 up to the surface. And the crew was unsure of how to proceed. Their battery power in the submarine was dwindling and the extreme heat in the vessel became unbearable. Some members of the crew suspected that war had broken out up above and they wanted to launch nuclear warheads towards the U.S. mainland to aid the Soviet offensive. Of course, if war had not broken out, this action certainly would have begun one and likely resulted in global devastation. The captain and the third in command both wanted to launch the missile, but Soviet protocol required that all three officers make the unanimous decision to strike, and Mr. Arkhipov wanted to think about it. And he eventually decided that he would not agree to the launch, but instead to wait for orders. As Arkhipov's cooler head prevailed, the sub was forced to the surface. The U.S. Navy surrounded it and forced the sub to return to the Soviet Union in shame. And for years, Mr. Arkhipov endured taunts in his home country for choosing to surface. However, in 2002, Robert McNamara, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, publicly acknowledged for the first time that Mr. Arkhipov's decision prevented a nuclear war at what he said was the most dangerous moment in human history. And so we could say that Mr. Arkhipov is a notable example of someone who displayed self-control and integrity despite direct pressure to do the opposite. Well, today we come to a, a very well-known text in the book of Daniel, 
One where three young Hebrew men display that same kind of self-control and integrity despite direct pressure to do the opposite. It is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And it ranks with stories like Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath as, as some of the best known and most exciting Bible stories. But one of the problems with a story that becomes so familiar is that we tend to forget that it really happened. This is more than a kid's story for Sunday school. It is not a myth. It is, in fact, history. And it is also a very practical chapter for men and women today who are trying to live for God in a very secular culture. In fact, we face many of the same pressures that these three young men faced, including the pressure to compromise what is right before God in order to be accepted by others. Well, we first met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in chapter 1, if you remember, where as colleagues of Daniel, they refused to defile themselves with the tainted royal food and wine. And now their commitment is about to be challenged yet again. And I think perhaps one thing we can take from this is that we need to remember that one spiritual victory is not usually the end of things. In fact, most days it might seem to you or to me that we're at the foot of yet another mountain to climb. We are regularly tempted to deny the Lord whom we love and we serve. So what can the remarkable faith of these three young Hebrew men from the 6th century BC teach 21st century Americans and Christians here? Well, it turns out quite a lot. And so let's consider this. There's an outline in your program if you'd like to follow along. As first, we consider the challenge they faced. The challenge these men faced. I'd like to begin reading in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he sent out messages to the high officers and officials and governors and advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. And so all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. And then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into the blazing fires. So, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whether their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The word of God. And so the circumstances are this. The proud King Nebuchadnezzar has set up this giant golden image. Can you imagine that? 90 feet tall, 
a huge monument. It might have been an image of himself or uh, perhaps his favorite pagan god. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly. And I wonder if it was inspired by that vision that we talked about back in chapter 2. Remember the vision when he'd been worrying over the fact that uh, this image he had in his dream that had different parts to it. Remember what happened to that image, that, that, that statue? It ended up in dust, didn't it? And so I find myself wondering, is Nebuchadnezzar now responding to that dream that Daniel told him the meaning of, which included the destruction of his own kingdom, and is he trying to do an end run? Well, I'm gonna build my own statue, not one in my dreams, but one of reality. And I'm gonna hold on to power. And there's not going to be any deviation from what I say. Because I'm going to be in charge. And so he excludes all possible sources of of division and and disintegration because he forces everybody to conform to his way. I wonder if that's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do here. And so, of course, all the high officials of Babylon have been summoned to this special dedication ceremony. There's a great band All right, it's like a rock festival, right? A concert. Everybody's there. Anybody who's anybody is there. But here at Nebuchadnezzar's big occasion, there's also something else. There's some fear. Because evil is in the air. By the way, where was Daniel in all this? Is he not there? We don't know. For some reason, not recorded. Daniel's not present, it appears, at these events. Perhaps he's off on some government mission. We don't know. Uh, I expect that his three friends miss him terribly. They were there on their own. They had to make their own stand without the guidance of their acknowledged leader. And you know, that reminds me, it's good to have friends. It's good to have leaders in the Lord. But we must not be over-dependent on others because, friends, there is a time that will come if it hasn't happened for you already where you will have to stand on your own. And it's important to be ready for that and to be connected to the Lord. Well, the scene is set for this great cultural religious spectacle and yet there's there's something sinister, isn't it? Isn't there about it? Because as a, a last resort, Nebuchadnezzar has also imposed this sanction of death by this fiery furnace. If anybody doesn't uh, succumb to his ways. Uh, And so he's making sure there's not any possible rebels or deniers. The pride of this ruthless dictator will tolerate no opposition. For refusal to obey would be an affront to Nebuchadnezzar's dignity. An insult to his gods. So that was the challenge that these three young men had to face. It was a problem that wasn't going away right? A decision had to be made and it had to be made then and there. And friends, we too will be required to make spiritual choices in the heat of the moment. And it's important that we be prepared. Let's look at what happens next, picking up in verse 8. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jewish man. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship your gold statue when they heard the sound of the harp and the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and all the musical instruments. 
That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into the blazing furnaces. But there are some Jews, king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and they do not worship the gold statue that you've set up. You remember being in elementary school and there was always that kid that had to go and tattle the teacher and every time anybody was out of line. It's kind of what reminds me of what's going on here, right? They got to run and tattle to the king. And so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they refused to bow down. They refused to renounce their God, Jehovah God. They refused to set aside his commands. They refused to follow the crowd. They were determined to stand out against this evil thing and to be faithful to the Lord at any cost. And so we could say that here is courage of the highest order because they are uh, prepared to face a fearful death rather than to dishonor the Lord. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Because the biblical account tells us that Nebuchadnezzar offered them a second chance. And so we go on to learn next of the compromise they refused. The compromise they refused. Let's read this next section together. The words uh, are on the screen. There they are, verses 13 and 14. Let's begin. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Hmm. This guy thinks quite a bit of himself, doesn't he? So Nebuchadnezzar orders these rebels to be brought before him. He recognized them, of course, as these Jews that he had just recently honored, right? He'd give them a privileged position. And so it seems that he's prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt in his mind that they certainly must have made some sort of mistake here. He assumed that it couldn't be possible that they would be deliberate in their intention to defy him. And so he gives them a second opportunity to conform to his ways. And that's quite a temptation, isn't it? In, in a multi-faith society, surely it's reasonable just to maybe bend your knee at an appropriate act of respect to the king's wishes. I mean, you don't have to believe it to do it, right? Why not just go along with it and humor the king? Surely it would be seen as ungrateful to publicly oppose this king who has just recently given you a position of privilege. He's shown you kindness. In any case, we can, can you just almost hear the tempter? The tempter whispering into the ears of these three young men, you're a long way from Jerusalem, boys. You're a long way from home. You better go along to get along. You know, it can be easy to compromise. It really can. We can compromise in areas of morality or honesty or faithfulness to the scriptures. 
to cut a few corners at school, in the workplace, or even in the privacy of your own home. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they'd have none of it. With great courage, with great dignity, they told the king that they're not going to argue about it with him. Notice in the text, the three young men make no attempt to excuse themselves. Let's look at the, the next two verses. Let's read these together as well. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, our majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Amen. God's word. They refused to compromise at the expense of their consciences. They were prepared to defy this powerful king rather than offend Jehovah God. It took courage to stand out, to be amongst the three of who knows how many. 3,000, 30,000, 300,000, we don't know. But it took courage to stand out. And as God's people, friends, we are not called to necessarily go out of our way to be martyrs, but we must be ready to make a stand if need be. The actions of these three young men took great courage. How do we account for that courage? Where does it come from? I think the secret is in our next section, number three, the confidence they possessed. Do you see some confidence in their statement? They don't argue. They don't say, yeah, but. They just simply lay out the case. This is what we have to do. And then Nebuchadnezzar, he throws down the challenge, doesn't he? The gloves come off. What God will be able to rescue you from my power? The king says. And they make that classic, wonderful reply. The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Do you see some confidence in that statement? They understand Jehovah is their God. He is theirs and they are his. And therefore they feel secure because their hope is based on a deep promise, a covenant, a personal relationship with the holy God of the universe. Their faith in God is so strong, so strong that they could not imagine any ultimate harm at all coming to them at the hand of this mere pagan emperor. How can God possibly forsake those who are his? And so the faith of these three men was unquestioning. Their God was omnipotent, flames, Powerful kings mean nothing to them. They understand that their God can deliver. And the basis of that confidence is their complete trust in God. They could look back to the history of their own people. Had not the, the, the same God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh's clutches? Had not this same God guided the Israelite people through 40 years in the wilderness? 
Is this not the same God who fed Elijah in a time of famine and drought? We could go on and on with stories about the faithfulness of God. And friends, when you and I are up against it, when it looks as if there is no way out, we too need to recall the wonderful deeds of God. We can look to scripture, certainly, but I hope too that we can look to our past to be reminded of what God has done in the past. And guess what? He's not changed. The God of these ancient Israelites, the God of your past, is the God of today for you. And this is the kind of knowledge that builds up confident faith, especially a confident faith in the time of struggle and testing. And by the way, these young men had a confidence in the purposes of God as well. Here we have some significant words. They say, our God can deliver, but then in verse 18, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, what, are, what they're saying is this, God can deliver, and if it's will, his will, he will deliver us, but he might not. And that's okay. It may be his will that we suffer or perhaps even die. In this moment, we don't know what his will is, but that's okay because no matter what his will is, we know it is always for the best. That is what trust in God truly says. What a statement to make. What a confidence to have and to carry in our spiritual life. They felt that loyalty to God was greater than even life itself. And friends, when we get to that point of confidence, that point of security, it is a wonderful, good feeling. One of the leaders in the century following the establishment of the New Testament church had a, a similar experience. His name was Polycarp. He was a, the bishop of Smyrna, and he was brought before the Roman emperors or the Roman authorities, and he was told that he must curse Christ in order to be released. This was a common tactic by the Romans back then. And his reply was simply this He said, 86 years I have served the Lord, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king? who saved me. And the Roman officer replied, unless you change your mind, I will have you burnt. But Polycarp said, you threaten a fire that burns for an hour and after a while is quenched. For you are ignorant of the judgment to come and everlasting punishment reserved for the ungodly. Do what you wish to me. And of course, he was burned at the stake. Friends, we know. We know that God is able to save, right? He is able to heal. He is able to deliver from temptation. He is able. But we also have a God who may not heal. He may not change our current circumstances. And that is hard. And yet faith in God is more important than faith in his works. I want to say that again. Faith in God is more important than faith in his works. 
ultimately, our faith must rest in the character of God, no matter what he does or does not do. This story from the book of Daniel is an important reminder that faithfulness to God may result in more problems. Sorry to tell you that if you didn't know that already. But it happens. Refusal to conform to this world's patterns may well involve trouble and even loss. But true faith is a readiness to trust God to fulfill his purposes, whatever they might be. There's a wonderful little passage from the, the, the life of Job. And if you remember that story, Job was so persecuted. So many bad things happened to him. And at one point in Job 13, in verse 15, Job says this. Speaking of God, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Remember, his friends are saying, curse God. His wife said, curse God and die. Just give in. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. You see, faith cannot always be proved by cause and effect. To demand that God acts in a way that we assume is best is, is a type of payment by results. We might call it the prosperity theology. But friends, it is not authentic Christianity. It is not biblical. The steadfast refusal of these young men made the king furious. And what did he do? He commanded the furnace to be heated again and again and again, seven times over. And then indeed they were thrown into that fire. What a terrible experience. And yet, what a wonderful experience it turned out to be. As we notice, number four, the companionship that they enjoyed. The companionship they enjoyed. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Have you ever met somebody like that? Ah, it's scary. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But, don't you love that word? That's a great word in scripture, but. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. The fourth man in the fire. The three young men were in the fire, but they were not alone. For the Lord was there with them. 
Nebuchadnezzar was filled with amazement. He could hardly believe what he saw. He had expected their bodies to be incinerated within seconds, but to his astonishment, what does he see? In the middle of the blazing flames, the men walking around, unhurt by the fire, quite unaffected by these terrifying surroundings. Friends, one thing is perfectly clear. If God had not delivered his servants from the fire, he had delivered them in the fire. He delivered them in the fire. For their, for their sake, he had deliberately suspended his natural laws. He performed a miracle. There's no other word for it. This is a miracle. And the important point, though, for us to remember is that the Lord was with them in their fiery trial. If God is omnipresent, he then must also be in the midst of our burning, fiery furnaces. Do you believe that? Whatever form that might take for you or for me, the fire is coming. The hard times are there. Some of you know that intimately. You've walked through the fire. You've experienced the hardship, the distress, the loss, the disappointment. But when we understand that God is present in our times of pain, his presence makes faith all the more possible. The great theologian C.S. Lewis once wrote these words. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciousness, but he shouts in our pain. God shouts in our pain. Friends, that is companionship. And what a companionship it is. It is how we can draw strength as we remember that throughout our journey through this life, we are never alone. If we trust in God, he is our constant companion. And I'm reminded of the very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he went back to heaven. You can read these in Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus says, I am with you always, always. In the spring of 1940, the German army was plowing through France despite the help of more than 300,000 British troops. The Germans surrounded and trapped most of the Allied forces at a coastal town called Dunkirk in northern France. And it appeared that the Allied army would force either annihilation or complete surrender. Eventually, through a, a great outpouring of courage, though, the British managed to organize a, a vast flotilla of hundreds of little privately owned boats and ships that sailed across to Dunkirk and evacuated most of the Allied forces. But before that evacuation, at one point, when everything looked utterly hopeless, allegedly a British officer sent the following message, condensed into three powerful words. But if not, 
but if not. At that time, it was a, a strong message of courage and ultimate hope in the midst of great trouble. The message conveyed that the British would stand defiantly against the Nazis and that God would provide a way through the dark night. That phrase, but if not, comes straight out of Scripture. Right here in our text today, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced the fiery furnace, they too refused to go down in defeat. Instead, they declared their trust in God, even if the mission failed. Look at verses 17 and 18 one more time. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not. Words from God that still speak to our heart today. But if not. Words of courage. Words of hope when the world can seem dark and hopeless. But if not, words to live by, and perhaps for some to die by. The message of this chapter of Daniel is clear. It is the need for us as followers of Jesus Christ to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior so that when not if, but when we face times of challenge to our faith, we will not compromise our Christian principles. When the fire of pain or disappointment or disillusionment comes, God will be with us. He is the Lord of the furnace. I hope that you believe that. And may that truth resonate for you, not just in the week to come, but throughout the rest of your life. But if not. Let's pray together. Father, will you 